Father, we thank you that we can marvel at your Son. You've made us marvelers. We, we, we can't stop singing about him and teaching on him, learning from him. He's captured us in every way, Lord. And Father, in this season, as we celebrate the advent of the incarnation, we marvel at that child in that manger. King of glory, the creator of all, sustainer of life. There he is, all there in perfection, sinless, and ready to live a perfect life so he can die a perfect death. So Lord, we, we thank you for this time of year. And as we continue to grow in our understanding of the word, we view this time of year so different than maybe we used to. And it truly becomes a time of worship and joy. And I pray that each home represented here, that they would just have inexpressible joy. Joy that just uh, causes them to marvel at their Savior, Lord, through this time of year. Thank you for the book of Numbers, Lord, as we learn from you from the nation of Israel. Uh, we pray that we can apply that to our lives tonight, Lord. We pray for those who desired to be here, but health reasons or something else kept them away, Lord. We pray that you would uh, comfort them in whatever their need is. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in Numbers chapter 8, if you have your Bibles. We are working our way through the Pentateuch. We are in that little stage between chapter 7 and chapter 10 verse 10, where there are these final instructions that probably really took place at the end of the book of Exodus, um, but this is a place the Bible has lined them up for us to understand them. They are prepar preparations to get particularly the priesthood and sacrificial uh, animals and grains all in place and get ready to start to live on the road, in a sense, with a tabernacle that is on the move. Um, and so when we think about uh, somebody, somebody asked me, said, well, how do you know that those passages, fulfillment of those were back in Exodus? Uh, we, we don't totally know that, uh, but it seems because of the wording that it says at the completion of the tabernacle, these things were given. So, so we see some commentary given here that probably happened at the end of Exodus. You say, well, does that happen anywhere else? Well, certainly it does, right in the beginning of the Bible. When you read Genesis chapter 2, that's a commentary of chapter 1, verse 24 through the end of the chapter. So the Lord, the Word will often do that, give you a commentary of something that happens in a little greater uh, understanding. And that's what is done here. God is telling Moses, and he's informing this through the inspiration of the Scripture, of all of these things, there's lots of little details that take place to get a, a nation of some two million people with a tabernacle in the center of them, all prepped, all ready to go, with the presence of a holy God to be ready to move with them and to worship with him and so forth. So there's a tremendous amount of details in this text. But by the time we get to 1010, we will start the movement of the nation towards the border of the promised land. Now, these chapters, uh, we find this dedication and charge to the Levites. Uh, we, we've seen the the dedication and the charge in chapter 3 and 4 to the priests, but now there's this arrest of the Levitical tribe that is getting the charge in there. So there's really three things we see in this passage that I want to cover tonight. 
the, the theme of the light of God. It's going to talk about the lampstand, right? We're going to look at that and think about the light of God, right? And then we're going to look at the dedication to service, the rest of the Levitical tribe, and how God calls people and dedicates them into the service of him. And then finally, how he cares for those in their older age. That's actually in this passage. And so we'll look at that as we go along here. But these are themes that you see throughout Scripture. I was just thinking of where I see these at. Psalms 100, the great Thanksgiving Psalm, verse 2 says, Serve the Lord with gladness. This passage is about the Levites serving the Lord, being ready to serve him. Psalms 56, 13, for you, for you have delivered my soul from death, the psalmist says, indeed my feet from stumbling so that I may walk before God in the light of the living. Lots of verses about the light, living within the light, that light of God, that light of glory. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus himself said this, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We're going to see that was the goal of preparing these Levites as they came and ministered at their tabernacle. They were not the priests that did the offerings, but they were, they were there to minister alongside. They were to do this in such a way that people would see the glory of God, and we do that as well. We let the light that's within us shine so people glorify God. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, Timothy tell, Paul tells Timothy, I think, Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful. Then he says this word, putting me into service. That's what he does with all of us. We're going to see that today. He puts us into service. You're, there's no sideline Christians, right? We're all in the game. And that's a good reminder in this passage as well. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28, Therefore we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. One of the things we'll see in this passage is this was the role of this Levitical tribe was the sacrificial systems. And they were to offer their selves, their own lives, which is acceptable to God. And then finally, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10 and as we look at the retiring of the Levitical tribe at the end of this section, I'm reminded of this verse. We talked about this section in our staff meeting. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself protect, excuse me, perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So there's some themes that we're going to see throughout this. The light of God, the dedication to service, and the care for those who served him. Let's look at three thoughts tonight. Number one, the light of God shines, excuse me, on the bread of life. That should be on, on there. Sorry, I missed that. Verse, chapter 7, verse 89, is, as we ended that text last week, um, we see that God was speaking in the most holy place. And morning and evening, uh, the Bible tells us that Moses would go to the tent of meetings, the tabernacle there at this point, and God would speak with him, and he would speak from the most holy place, from between the cherubim where his Shekinah glory dwelt there, and he would speak. Now as we flow into chapter 8, these first three verses here, um, it describes Aaron and what he was to do in this, this role in the holy place morning and evening. Look at those first three verses, or first four verses with me. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and say to him, When you mount the lamps, the seven lamps, which give light in front of the lampstand, Aaron therefore did so, and he mounted its lamps at the front of the lampstand. 
So as the Lord had commanded Moses. Now this was the workmanship of the lamps, hammered out, hammered work of gold. Um, from its base to its flowers, it was hammered work according to the pattern which the Lord had shown Moses. So he made the lampstand. So you can kind of see a picture of these, these flowering uh, lamps where, where actually the oil was held, but there was a hammered out base to that. And you can see he wants that light to shine towards the rest of the most holy place. So we, we find that the great detail of uh, the construction of the tabernacle and its furnishings back in Exodus. But, but we saw last week that chapter 7 was the tribes coming. They're bringing all of this uh, offering to the Lord, these animals and grain and all of that. And now we're actually going to see these put in place. But remember, Aaron was the leader. He was one of the leaders of the Levitical tribe, right? So now it's him, his role. God's saying, here's your role. I want you to tend to and take care of this lampstand so that it shines light continually in my chambers, right? In the holy place. And so in this section, we really are seeing part of Aaron's duties that were given to him, uh, which is fitting, right? Because it's introducing the dedication to the rest of the Levitical tribe. Now, remember that the altar was in the courtyard. You came in the, the west gate, and there would have been the brazen altar. It would have been right in front of you. As you went around that, you would have come to the laver or the uh, wash basin uh, there. And then after that, you would come to the west end of the holy place. Then from there, there had been a veil, and, and behind that veil was the most holy place. So you can get that scene again. As you entered into the holy place... You would see on your left as you came in would be the lampstand. It would be on your right. The table of showbread would be on your right. And the altar of incense would be straight ahead of you in front of the veil to the Holy of Holies. So just wanted to set that scene again for you. Now, this lampstand was to be on that south side. And, and you'll notice in the verse that it was to be adjusted so that seven lamps, look at this, so that the seven lamps will give light in front of it. Well, what was in front of it? What was directly across from it? The showbread. And so God wanted that light to light up, have a backdrop of the south wall um, to point that light towards the bread of life, which would be Jesus eventually, but here the showbread, right? So the sacrifices were made morning and evening on the altar, and this lampstand needed to be attended to, right? They had the purest oil. Remember, we looked at this in Exodus. The purest oil, olive oil, was given for that burning of those lamps. And, and Aaron was to attend to this because it had to burn all night long. And so he was to attend to it twice a day. Exodus reminds us of that. Now, this type of attention and meeting with the Lord did, did not go unnoticed with the birth of the church. Uh, a lot of old-time guys wrote about the need for meeting with the Lord morning and night. Um, countless prayer books are written. You can go back and find many prayer books. My favorite is by Charles Spurgeon. Maybe you've read his Morning and Evenings. Have you ever read that? Uh, just a great uh, little addition to whatever you're reading in the Bible. Uh, he'll usually have a verse and some comments, and he has it morning and evening, and it's dated throughout the year. Because this was a pattern that it seems God was setting up with the nation of Israel, particularly with his priest and with his Levites. When they would come, in morning and night, they were to attend, and they were to be there. It seems as though as we study this, many commentators write on this, that the Lord would speak with Moses, call him into the tent of the meetings morning and night. 
And so many have picked up on that during the church age, that it's a great time to spend reading and listening to God as he speaks to us through his word. I hope you take time. That. And, and it makes sense. Even in a fallen world, even in a, a nation of Israel, there's still tremendous things that had to take place during the day. There's responsibilities. There's harvest that has to go in. There's, there's all kinds of work that has to go done. So when you arise, listen to me. And before you go to sleep, listen to me. Talk with me. Spend time with me. And I think you see that reminder in there. Now, the lampstand, or later would be called the menorah, and that comes from just the Hebrew word uh, there, that we're told in verse 3 that these lampstand was to be mounted in such a way where you could remove the, the little lamps that are on top of the seven arms, and they were adjustable to throw that light, as we've seen there in verse 3. And the light from the stand was to cast across the room. And I believe this was to show that light there on the showbread. And it reminds us that God understood that Israel was in a very dark world. But he was lighting the path to his son. When you start to think about this, it's pretty amazing that Jesus said, I'm the bread of life, right? Well, what's in the most holy place? Bread. And, and the light of God is shining on that. You could really equate that to the work of the Spirit, shining on Christ to light the way in a dark world. And all of this is done in a very ceremonial way and became very ritualistic to the nation of Israel as they lost their first love for the Lord. But as we go back and study this, we, we marvel at this. And it reminds us that God was shining a path to lead them right to the bread of life. And he does lead them there. And when they finally get there, just like they're going to do at the border, they rejected Jesus Christ and crucified him. Everything led them there. And you kind of see this set up as you look through uh, the hazy view of the Old Testament at biblical theology pointing towards the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, God is the Father of lights. James 1.17 tells us that. And he, and he illuminates people to see the work of Christ. I love that. The only way you know there's a Jesus is because our Father in heaven, through the work of the Trinity, spotlighted him so you would understand who he was. And maybe some of you in here, and, or any of us, or all of us, at one time, Jesus was either a curse word or just some unknown deity of something. Now he's everything to you. It's because the Father spotlights him in our life. The Spirit does that work. And otherwise, we would just continue to wander around in the darkness. Isn't that what the world's doing? Anybody have loved ones that are wandering around in the darkness, and you're praying that God will show them the light of Jesus Christ? That they'll feast on the bread of Christ. We all have that in our lives, don't we? When you think about this, even though darkness or sin, darkness is that illustration of sin, covers the entire world in a, in a sense, God is this everlasting light to the believer, and he's shining Christ. He's shining on it. And when, as I studied this uh, and was working through this this week, I thought, Lord, I can just see, you know, make sure that light goes forward, Aaron. I, I just don't want it there for the sake of it being there. I want it pointing towards I want to illuminate something. And directly across is the bread of the showbread. Now, all of this, of course, points to a coming Messiah uh, this is not the only place where you can... You know, Scott, are you sure about this? Well, let me just read another verse to you to see if we can uh, qualify this. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 19. Listen to this. No longer will you have the sun for light or by day, nor for brightness will, uh, nor for brightness will the moon give you light, but you will have the Lord as an everlasting life, 
and your God of glory. And so that's always been the goal, that the Lord would be the light, right? And we, as we said in our Lord Jesus Christ, he, in, in chapter 8 of John, he shows up to what we would call a festival of lights, right? In John chapter 7, remember, his brothers are trying to get him to go to the festival. They finally figured out, hey, this dude may be something pretty special. And if we hang around him, and if he's who some people are claiming him to be, we're going to be in a good position. So they're trying to push him to go to town, to, to go down to Judah and to, to get, you know, get this thing rolling, right? You're going to be the big guy. We're going to be right there. And Jesus is not doing that. And they get mad at him and leave. Well, in chapter 8, Jesus goes down, but he goes down on his own terms. And he shows up at the festival. And you remember this. He's, he's there. He's standing in the courtyard. And what's fascinating, uh, I think John Piper writes on this a little bit, he, he's standing there on this particular passage um, in front of these great candle opera-like beams, some of the biggest marble beams that were in Solomon's temple there, Herod's temple that was rebuilt, standing there in front of him with all these most likely torches because they would celebrate that God led the nation through the wilderness and they would bring torches and they would sing praises to God. And in their midst, standing right there, is the light of the world. In fact, that's the passage that he says, I am the light of the world. John chapter 8, verse 12, he spoke again and said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That same group cries out, crucify him in a matter of months. It's astounding, isn't it? The light was there, but they were so captured in the darkness. And so... As you think about that, I thought about that as I was finishing this out. This magnificent ceremony is going on in John chapter 8. All these people are singing praises of God because he took them through the darkness and the wilderness and the, and the light took them and, and a light by uh, a pillar of fire by night and a, a cloud by day. And they're celebrating all of that. But all of their lights will burn out. But the Lord never burns out. And Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. I don't burn out. Now, when we get to the tabernacle... This light now is shining on the bread, the showbread there. And the fulfillment of all of this was that the light and the bread go together. They were to maintain it. Remember, the bread was to be changed out constantly. The oil in the lamp was to be changed out. They go together. And Aaron was to take care of this. He was to make sure that these things happen. These are just not symbols. They're just not things that were there. They're not just old relics. They're, they're teaching us something about the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was to teach the nation that God was the light, casting it on his son, was going to lead them to, to the promised land and lead them to the Messiah. And he's showing that all in these illustrations. Now, all of this shows God's concern and love for his people. He loves his people. His voice is in the most holy place. And in the holy place is the light shining out of shining in the darkness, showing a path to to the sustaining bread of life. And so David, or the psalmist of 119, says the word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It directs me where I'm to go. They, they knew this. They understood this. The authors of the Old Testament were inspired to write this way. Now, there's also a clear reminder here that God's word can't be separated, right? The light can't be separated from the bread. They all go together. They all bring you they bring you into the presence of, the, of a holy God, the Shekinah glory of God. That's what you, you come that way first. You don't come in the back door to God. You come through those things that represent the Lord Jesus Christ to 
the Father. And all of this is beautifully displayed throughout the tabernacle. And that light was not only found in the tabernacle, but it's found in that pillar, right? It's found in the Shekinah glory. Now, the significance of the instruction about these seven lamps on the lampstand uh, was all to be consecrated in and, and it's part of this priesthood, this whole priesthood uh, that God is setting apart. He's dedicating and con- consecrating. So he's taking a group of people that he has set apart. They don't have inheritances. They don't get land. They don't have all that. They belong to him. He's setting this group apart for himself. And so all of this has great significance, how this group comes to God. And so here the Father of Lights uh, the, the heavenly Father is on display in the most holy place. This light shining is a picture of a coming Messiah who is the bread of life, and he is the only way that you can be coming to the presence of the Father. Now, before I move to that next section, which we'll go through a little quicker here, um, when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, let's not forget that he says also later on that you are the light of the world. Now, that's a big difference, Right? A lot of people, oh, Jesus, he's a lot of the world that sings Christmas songs. But as we receive the Lord Jesus Christ, now he dwells within us through his spirit, and we become the light of the world. That's an amazing thing, right? When you think about the Shekinah glory of God and in his light and who he is and all that Jesus is, I am the light of the world, his own statements, and then, then he himself says, you are the light of the world. And so what amazing truth and declaration of who we are in Christ. And so this living word of God, our Lord Jesus Christ in his light has come to mankind. We celebrated it this time of year, but it wasn't just a coming and he was here and that was great and all of that. He has indwelt us and we now become lights. Now, next we get to this dedication to the service of the Lord, number two, a people dedicated to the service of the Lord. Look at verses 5 through 22, and let me just kind of climb my way down through this a little bit with you. Remember, in chapters 3 and 4, we saw the dedication and the responsibility to the priest. And this is different than within the priest, within the Levitical tribe, there were priests that ministered like Aaron and others to the Lord. And then there was the rest of the Levitical tribe who supported that whole ministry. And that's who he's talking about in chapter 8, the rest of the Levites here. And you would think that this was um, uh, some kind of lesser group, but it's no, in no way is that way. You will, you'll see what God does with him here. Uh, but we'll also notice as we go through this passage that this is where God substitute. Remember in, in the Passover time in Egypt, he said, all of the firstborn is, is mine. This is where God substitutes the Levite tribe for the firstborn of the nation of Israel. We'll see that as we go through this now. So this passage is showing that the Levites are entering into a true vocation now. This is what this is going to be about as they serve God. And those who are, uh, those of us, as we, as we make the New Testament connection to yours, so I want you to think, as I go down through these verses, I want you to be thinking New Covenant, New Testament, uh, believer, priest, that's what we are. Think through these things because now we are permanently identified in Christ and now you and I have been called into the service of our master, the service of the Lord of lights. We've been called into service. So there's a real connection here, and I want you to think about that as we go through this and, and keep that believer-priest term in your head. Look, what, look with me at verse 5 and 6. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the Levites from among the sons of Israel and cleanse them. Now, the regulation for the Levites are 
not quite as strict as it was for the priests, if you go back to chapters 3 and 4. But this doesn't mean it's a lesser office. It just, it's giving the idea that there's a distinction between the rest of the Levitical tribe and the priest. He's making a distinction between them. So, uh, but because of their role, they're in the presence of God in a sense too. They're, they're serving, they're cleaning, they're carrying, they're doing all kinds of things that take place with this massive sacrificial system here. They are in the presence of God and they must be cleansed. And so it reminds us, nobody, nobody comes in the presence of God who's not clean. You will be rejected. And that's where Christ cleanses us through his blood, right? So you see the connection there that we can see as we go through there, right? So he says right there at the end, to cleanse them. He's telling Moses is telling Aaron, Aaron, these have to be cleansed, right? Look at verse 7 with me. Thus you shall do to them for their cleansing, sprinkling purified uh, water on them, and let them use a razor over their whole body and wash their clothes, and they will be clean. So here we see just a very detailed aspect to, uh, really in a lot of ways, a very deep cleansing, isn't it? I mean, basically, these are bald people everywhere. They are shaved completely. Their clothes are entirely cleaned, and everything on them is clean. And most likely this was done right there in the courtyard using the purified water of the laver or the golden basin that would, or the bronze basin that would have been there, um, which was about halfway to the holy place. Now look at verse 9, 9 and 10. So you shall present the Levites before the tent of meetings. You shall also assemble the whole congregation of the sons of Israel and present the Levites before the Lord. And the sons of Israel shall lay their hands on the Levites. Okay, now you see the scene. You have the rest of the Levites. These are the ones that are not doing the sacrifices and the Aaron's and, and Kohath and some of those other guys there. Uh, this is the rest of them, the support group. And God has brought them near now to the tent of meetings. And the whole congregation of Israel is to be looking on. Now, most likely, as you see in verse 10, the ones laying on the hands on them are probably those representatives that we saw in chapter 7 of the different tribes, most likely. Right? When we lay hands on elders or deacons or missionaries here, uh, elders come up and we really represent you because it would be very difficult to get all of you up here. <laughs> so we represent you. So that's kind of what's going on here, I believe. But once they're cleansed here, as you see in 9 and 10, here comes this congregation, right? They're recognizing. They recognize what God's doing. Right? When we lay hands on some, someone and we ordain them for ministry, we are, we are not saying, okay, we've okayed these. We are recognizing what God has done in their lives, and we lay hands on that. And that's what's going on here. We pick this up as the church, right? We saw this. Uh, Paul tells Timothy not to forget of the laying on the hands by the presbyterial, right? By the congregation, by the leaders, that laid hand. Don't forget that, Timothy. They laid hands on you. They recognized that you were calling. Timothy may have been getting a little bit nervous. Apostle Paul is maybe going to die. He's in, and he said, don't forget that the people recognized what God was doing. And that's what's happening here. So Aaron's overseeing this offering. He's overseeing this cleansing that's going on. Moses is giving him an instruction. And this dedication of the Levites is taking place here. Now, it is important as we look at 9 and 10 that there's, 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 a, there's a, a understanding of the involvement of the entire nation. 
Look with me at 11. Aaron then shall present the Levites before the Lord as a wave offering. This is going to be an offering of worship, not for sin, from the sons of Israel, that they may qualify to perform the service of the Lord. Now the Levites shall lay their hands on the head of the bulls, then offer the one for sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. So now there's this transferring of, of dedication that's happening. You can kind of see what's happening. The nation is laying their hands through probably the leaders on these Levites. The Levites are laying their hands on the offering, which they got from those leaders, remember, in chapter 7. And in a sense, they're transferring all that through. They're, they're, they're now representing the nation of Israel. Now, Notice he says, and present the Levites, verse 10, before the Lord, and the sons of Israel shall lay their hands on them. There is an understanding that now this firstborn sons now are represented in this Levitical tribe. This is, what, this is what's happening here. God is now taking the Levites in place of the firstborn sons of Israel. Now, God wants these these Levites cleansed, right? And I want to get back to this because I skipped the thought in my head. Sometimes verses go through and I forget to mention them. Romans chapter 12 says that, Paul says, I urge you by the mercies of God, what God has done in, in a deep love and an undeserving way for us, by, by his mercies, I want you to offer yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. This is your uh, this is your spiritual service of worship. And that's what's happening here. So in verses 11 and 12, um, the Levites now complete this transfer, right? They, they got hands laid on them. They are now laying their hands on these bulls, this sin offering and this birth offering, and they're laying their hands on the animal in the same way they were laid hands on. Now, just one thing to notice again, the guilt offering is not there. Um, and that would have been the offering for sin. There, this is not any offerings for sin here. These are worshipful offerings. This is them being set apart for God. Um, when, when we look at, and you might say, well, what is the sin offering? The sin offering was an act of worship to God that he was the one who was able to take away sin. They would come and give a guilt offering when they had sinned. So here they're worshiping God, and we do this. We sing songs like this. We thank the Lord that he's forgiven us, right? So that's what's taking place here as the nation has laid hands on the Levites. The Levites have now laid hands upon the bulls on this offering, all symbolizing their worship and love of God. Now, look at verses 13 through 19. Let me just read through this because this helps us understand that there's even more starting to happen here. You shall have the Levites stand before Aaron and before his sons so as to present them as a wave offering to the Lord. Thus you shall separate the Levites from among the sons of Israel and the Levites shall be mine. Very important. We'll come back to that. Then after the Levites may go in to serve the tent of meetings, but you shall cleanse them and present them as a wave offering. That's worship. For they are wholly given to me from whom the sons of Israel, from among the sons of Israel. I have taken them for myself, now look at this, instead of every firstborn issued of the womb, this is key here, the firstborn of all the sons of Israel. For every firstborn among the sons of Israel is mine, 
among the men and among the animals. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified them for myself. But I have taken the Levites instead for every firstborn among the sons of Israel. I have given the Levites as a gift to Aaron and to his sons for among the, from among the sons of Israel to perform the service of the sons of Israel at the tent of meetings and to make atonement on behalf of the sons of Israel so there they will be no plague among the sons of Israel by the coming near to the sanctuary. So now the nation is, in, in a sense, think about this, is identified in these Levites. They're, they've laid hands on them and they have laid hands on the sacrifice. So the, the nations identified in the Levites, the Levites are now identified in the sacrifice as worship to the Lord. And now the Levites belong to the Lord. Notice I highlighted that in verse 14. The Levites shall be mine. He says the exact same words about the firstborn. So here we see where God says, now, I told you I'm going to take the firstborn. Here's what I'm doing. That firstborn will be the Levites. They're mine. They don't need any land. They don't need any inheritance. I will be their inheritance. And so now they become that, and there's this transfer of identity through them. So the Levites belong to the Lord. And, and notice, notice in this passage, they're given by the nation to Yahweh for his own purposes. We're giving you this group of people for your purposes, God. All the other tribes are going to do certain things. They're going to, they're, they all have their own little bit of identity and di different things they do. Some are more warring tribes. Some are more gathering. They do different things. We'll see that as we go along with them. But that Levi tribe belonged to God. And they are the priests, in a sense, that come and minister before the Lord. This shows us something uh, quite awesome. And though it's a little bit veiled in the Old Testament text, it teaches us that God calls and conforms his people. It teaches us that in the New Testament, it is, it is the Lord who chooses us, right? We're chosen in Christ. We're cleansed through the Son's work. And we are now destined, we're now set on a uh, divine plan of works that God prepared in advance for us to do. That's what God calls us into service. Now, Josh read 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10 there. And there we are recognized because the, the previous verse says they stumbled over Jesus. But then he says, but you, you're my chosen royal priesthood. I mean, he goes into that whole explanation. He uses about four different terms to express the identity of people in Christ. We are now those set apart for the work of God, those who can come into the presence of God, those who offer sacrifices with our lips of praise, those who are cleansed, those who have been shaved off in all of our ungodliness and all of our sinfulness, washed away and can come in the presence of God. So that's where all this comes from. This was all pointing to something, a greater fulfillment in it. When you look at this role the priest were given in their dedication here. Now, we know that's done through the work of the Spirit, don't we? He calls us. He regenerates us. He calls us out of darkness. He spotlights Jesus Christ, and, and there he cleanses us by the washing and the renewing and the regeneration, right? Uh, uh, Titus chapter 3, verse 4 and 5, right? He, he does that. And, and then our response is we commit to the Lord. We commit to those good works that he's prepared in advance. We commit to do things his way. 
And now we enter into service, into an eternal service with the Lord. I, I think I, I've enjoyed this so much because I go, well, that's us. And, and though I personally don't believe that the church is the new Israel, I, I think God is going to go back and deal with Israel. Uh, and I know there's different views on that. But the Bible is, uh, we believe in biblical theology, right? This Bible is pointing to something greater. The Old Testament is pointing to something greater. And when I study the Levitical tribe, I go, well, that's us. We're the ones who have been cleaned. All our sins have been shaved away. We now can enter into the presence of God with waving offerings to him. Oh, Lord, thank you for what you've done for us. Because we belong to him. And I love that. I have it highlighted here. The Levites shall be mine. Christian, you belong to Jesus. <laughs> you are his. You are not your own. So that's why we pray, Lord, today I'm about ready to go to work. I'm going to raise kids. I'm going to teach. I'm going to do whatever you do. But I'm yours. I belong to you. See, that's that. That's the, the mentality of the Levitical tribe, the priesthood in the Old Testament. That's the mentality of the New Testament believer priest. I belong to you. You cleanse me. I'm yours. The New Testament highlights this idea in many different ways, but I love this verse. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23. The writer of Hebrews says this, To the general assembly, now listen to this, and the church of the firstborn... Now, that term firstborn is not talking about Jesus in this passage like it does in Colossians. It's talking about you and I. We are the firstborn of God. That's, we, that means we're his children. And so the reference that the writer of Hebrews gives here, he calls us the general assembly. So he's talking about the universal church, that we are the church of the firstborn. Now, listen to this. Who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirit the spirits of the righteous made perfect. That's us. So we are the children of the firstborn. And so when you study this passage, you begin to realize that these Levites replaced the command of the firstborn belong to the Lord back in Egypt. They are now that firstborn. Because haven't you read the Bible and you go, what happened to all the firstborn going to be in the Lord's? Hannah says, yes, if you give me a child, I'll give him back to you. And she did that. But we don't see that anywhere else. That's because God says, my command's going to go this way. The firstborn are the Levites. I want them. They're mine. You don't give them an inheritance. I'll give them an inheritance. They belong to me. Now, every believer that has been brought into the body of Christ is dedicated and belongs to the Lord. You're not your own. You belong to the Lord. You've been consecrated. You've been dedicated. And you are a believer, priest, who works in the presence of your God and Savior. Whatever you do, you're working in the presence of your God and Savior. You, you are his Levitical tribe, in a sense. What a joy that is. Remember in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the nation wants a king. Remember that? We want a king, and we want to be like what? The rest of the nations. And, and what did God say through Samuel? He said, if you get a king... They're going to take your children. They're going to take your belongings. They're going to take all this stuff. Everything's going to belong to them, right? Now you think about this passage. Everything the Levite was belonged to the Lord. He did not have land. He did not have inheritance. He did not have anything else like the rest of the tribes had. 
Everything belonged to the Lord. And as the nation started to slip away and wanted to be like the world, Samuel warns them, you will no longer be giving everything to God, you're going to now give it to an earthly king. And it was the start of a slow but yet steady progressing away from the Lord with some highlights with some great kings like David and others. Now, here the whole nation is consecrated before God through this Levitical tribe, right? And they're, they're God's particular people. They're set apart for him. Remember, he says, I don't want you to have the standards of the world. I don't want you to have the ideas of these nations around you. I don't want you to have their practices. We've looked at that several times where, where whether it was whether, whether, whether hair or tattoos or whatever else, he was against those things because he did not want them to practice like the world because it was all related to how they related to their gods. And so... Here, God sets these Levitical tribe apart. You know, it's, it's interesting when you start thinking about this. He does not call us Benjamin believers or Judah believers. He calls us believer priest. Not believer Judah or believer Benjamin or any other tribe. He calls us believer priest. And that's a, such an important thing because Benjamin couldn't make his way in. Anybody from the tribe of Benjamin or Judah or anywhere else couldn't just walk into the uh, into the tabernacle and start telling what he wanted to do. He wasn't allowed in there. So he calls us believers priests because we've been, we've been consecrated, we've been cleansed, and so we can come into his presence. Do you see that connection? I think it's beautiful. And I love this. Now, Paul talks about his ministry. I want to show you a passage. I, I, it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Go to that one. I want to read this. Because you say, well, this is great. I belong to the Lord. Everything's going to be great. <laughs> the priest's life wasn't easy. They had to trust God. They had no inheritance. They had no land. They, had, they didn't have any of those things. They had to trust God. And Paul knew what this was like. As he defends his apostolic position, which he does quite a bit in 2 Corinthians. He does it a little bit in 1 Corinthians. But in 2 Corinthians, he defends repeatedly his apostolic position. We see some comments he makes about ministry. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. And working together with him, that's Christ, we are also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Don't cheapen grace, is what he's starting to say here. For he said... At the acceptable time, I listened to you, and on the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So there's going to be a response to this. Verse 3, giving no cause for offense in anything, so that the ministry will not be discredited. So here's Paul. He, he's constantly offended, but he gives no offense. Because he wants the ministry not to be discredited. Verse 4, but in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God, that's that's the Levitical tribe. They were servants to the work of God in the tabernacle. In much endurance, in much affliction, in hardship and distress, in beatings and imprisonments and tumult, in labors and sleepless nights and hunger and purity and knowledge and patience and kindness, in the Holy Spirit, walking in the Spirit. That's a battle, right, in itself versus the flesh. In genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. By glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report. Anybody ever deal with that? Regarded as deceivers and yet true. As unknown yet unknown. As dying yet behold we live. 
as unpunished yet not put to death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all. And what what an amazing passage. You go, well, that's not any cakewalk. And, and And I guarantee you there's some in this room that have experienced some of those things because they're a Christian. Because you've been consecrated by God, set apart by God through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, because you've been cleansed and you've been put into the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, you can pay for that on this earth, can't you? You can be ridiculed, put down, loss of work. I know too many people who lost their jobs because of their position and their stance because they wouldn't give in to something. There's stuff going through the Supreme Court right now, right? The, the web designer gal in Colorado, just that went right to the Supreme Court. What, what, there, there's, there, what comes with being set apart for the Lord is often difficulties. And, and I don't think we're told much of it, of, of the Levitical tribe, but I often think, was there some Levites, and most likely there probably was, we're going, well, they got all that land. As they finally get into the promised land, man, massive tracts are starting to give uh, to the different tribes, right? Not the Levites. No inheritance, no land. You belong to me. And so there is an understanding that we are given to the ministry in the service of the Lord. And we do that so that others will taste the grace of God as well, right? Now, last little section here, verses 20 through, excuse me, uh, 23 through, oh, did I read? 20 through 22. Yeah, let me just comment on this real quick. Thus Moses did all that the congregation of the sons of Israel of Levite, according to all that the Lord commanded him, Moses concerning the Levites, so the sons of Israel did to, uh, did to them. So they, they consecrated them, they laid hands on them, they gave them the freedom to do all those things. The Levites, too, were purified themselves from sin and washed their clothes, and Aaron presented them as a wave offering before the Lord, and Aaron also made atonement for them to cleanse them. Then after that, the Levites went in to perform their service in the tent of meetings before Aaron and before his sons, just as the Lord had commanded Moses concerning the Levites, so they did to them. So everything that the Lord had told them to do Moses and Aaron and the Levites, and listen to this, and the sons of Israel did it. Boy, if they just could have kept that up, right? They do all this work. (laughs) They do all this honoring of God, going through all this, and in another month they're going to get to the promised land, right to the border of it, and they go, oh, they don't believe you, God. That's going to happen. And they get turned around. But right now they're doing that. That's a good lesson, right? There are times we say, oh, Lord, okay, I'll do whatever you say. Then times we lean upon our own flesh and we fall. Last thought here, and I think this is pretty precious here. God's special care for those who serve him. In no way do I want to tie this to the pastorate or elders or something like that. I really tie it to anybody who is a believer priest who is one saved by the grace of God. I I think there's a connection to show how God cares for his own children here. So this final section deals with the age of the Levite here. Verse 23, then now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, this is what applies to the Levites. From 25 years old and upward, they shall enter to perform the service in the work of the tent of meetings. But at the age 50, they shall retire for the service in the, in the work and not work anymore. And they may, however, assist their brothers in the tent of meetings 
to keep the obligation, keep an obligation, but they themselves shall not do work, thus you shall deal with the Levites concerning their obligations. Well, here we see the age was 25 to 50. Uh, I know someone would say, well, when you go further on in the Bible, that age gets changed. Um, we believe that because there's no longer the carrying of the tabernacle anymore. After Solomon's temple is built, the age is extended. Uh, so we begin to understand uh, what's going on here. But I think the point of this passage is that God shows a very divine concern for the welfare of those who serve him. That's you and me. He's concerned about you. And he wants to protect you. And so, uh, and you say, well, did they just quit working altogether when they got 50? Well, um, the, in verse 25, you find this word for work. It, it's an interesting word. It, it, it's, it's a word that's connected to heavy lifting. So assembling or disassembling and transporting the tabernacle. That job was suited for younger people, 25 to 50. They're kind of the prime of their life, right? Isn't that nice? He, he thought of people when they got a little older. Okay, yeah, you guys are no longer carrying that. The young guys are going to do that. And, and then when we get into verse 26, it reminds us that, that in their retirement, these older Levites, they were able to assist, so they still had obligation. They just weren't doing the heavy lifting. Now, what, what I see here and what's encouraging to me is this displays here this very special love God has for his people who serve him. He sees what you do, and he cares for you as you grow older. He cares for you because you served him. He will be concerned, and he will extend his care to those who faithfully serve him. And I think God desires that his servants are not continually, their entire life, overburdened with life of ministry. And so he sets limits to them. Now, like all Old Testament truths here, as they point forward to something, we have to be careful what we carry forward and what we don't. Because as we think about the New Testament, at the end of Paul's life, what did he say? I am poured out. Now, that's a fascinating statement. Because he's using an Old Testament term. Uh, later, we'll see this wine that gets poured on the altar, on the hot altar, and it steams up and it goes away. He's, he's using an analogy of himself. I am like this sacrifice of wine that is completely poured out. In Philippians, he said, if I'm going to be poured out, he was in jail, prison epistles. Second Timothy, he's now dying, last inspired epistle written, he says, I am poured out. So, <laughs> so if you're here thinking, hey, great, I'm over 50, I don't have to work a nursery. <laughs> That's not what this is about. <laughs> there are certain things as we get older that we need to allow the younger believer priests to come in and do. And we use the wisdom to guide them and direct them, and we do other things. And God's caring for us and helping us through that. But in no way do we retire. We get retreaded is the idea here. Right? Some of you um, have even expressed this to me. You know, I'm getting close to retirement. I can't wait to serve the Lord more. And I think that's a great statement because you have a responsibility to your family. You're working all these hours. You're, you're trying to, in a difficult economy at times, you're trying to provide for the people you love. And that takes a tremendous time. And that alone is ministry in itself, right? You're a missionary in your job and your home and your neighborhood and all those things as well. Um, but when you get retired, it doesn't mean, oh, good, I'm retired. I'm going to buy, a, you know, a... Uh, a motorhome and go see the world. Well, you, you, God has poured all of these years into you so you can function and care for the church. 
And so the New Testament talks a little different, right? Paul says, I'm poured out. I'm poured out. I don't have anything left. And, and though God knows that he needs to ease our burden at that time, the Bible reminds us that, that why there's still light, keep running, right? We, we hear our Lord saying that. It, it's still light. Run while it's light because night is coming. He reminds you to trim your wicks and fill your lamps full of oil and be ready for the return of the master. Paul tells us to discipline our bodies so that we do not fight aimlessly. We're in shape spiritually and running. And then Paul closes out his life with this statement, for I am already poured out as a drink offering to you, chapter 4, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6 through 8. And the time of my departure is come. God told him, this is it. You, know, you are poured out. This is done. And then he says, I have, listen to these, completed, fought the good fight. I have completed, finished the course. I have completed the faith. I kept it. And in the future, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. But not only me, but all the rest of the believer priesthood who long for his appearing. So as I looked at this, I thought, Lord, how kind you were to older men who could no longer bear the burden of carrying that tabernacle through the wilderness, right? And then eventually, 40 years later, into the promised land and all that they had to do. And and I will remind you as we get into the, the difficulties of the land they were in, how hard that must have been to constantly carry those things. He was kind to let them not have to carry that, but he didn't. He didn't set them aside. They still had obligations, and they were much wiser and smarter. And so what a fascinating little passage. I know these are challenging passages. I come in, and some of you are reading them before church starts, and I know you're wondering. They go, what's he going to say about this? But the more you study it, the more you realize God has wonderful things for us. As we study this lampstand, I could have spent the whole night just on the lampstand. Jesus is the light of the world. God is the Father of light, shining on Jesus, the bread of life. He's consecrated people for himself. We are the believer priest. He has shaved us clean of our sin. Praise the Lord, right? And and then he cares for us as we grow older in this life within the faith. But he wants us to finish well. Is that your goal? You want to finish well? You want to just kind of fall across the finish line? (laughs) Nilo always said, Scott, we're going to die tired. I love that saying, don't. We're going to die tired. You go, I'm tired already. No, tired from serving the Lord is the idea, right? (laughs) Tired from serving the Lord. Again, our strength may not be what it used to be, but we can always pray. We can always serve. We can always encourage. We can always help. We can always give. There's so many things, even as our strength maybe fades in our older years, that we can continue to serve. And just the wisdom God has given you many, many years in the faith of reading your Bible, being involved in the ministry of the church, you have so much to offer. Serve the Lord with gladness, the psalmist said. Serve the Lord with gladness. Finish well. Be like that drink offering poured out on the altar for the Lord. Amen? Father, thanks for Numbers chapter 8. This fascinating chapter as we're getting ready to watch the nation start working its way toward the border. And all these little details all point to something greater. And we realize it's pointing towards the Messiah. It's pointing towards um, someday Christ's church that are now believer priests, chosen of God, set apart for him, Lord. And the fuller understanding of it begins to be fulfilled there, Lord. 
And we thank you that you've set us apart and you've cleaned us and cleansed us through the work of Jesus Christ. You've spotlighted the ministry of Christ in our hearts through the work of the Spirit. And you have prepared good works in advance for us to do. You've laid out what you want this group of believer priests to be doing. And Lord, we want to do those well. We want to do those as long as we can. And we know there's times where we may go through troubles or get older or whatever it may be that you lighten that load at times. But we still serve. There's still obligations to the, to the, to the group of believer priests to serve and be, one, be unified and serve our Lord together. And so, Lord, I pray that we would all finish well, Lord. Thank you for so many that are out tonight. Just encouragement to see them all, Lord. Uh, and we pray that you would help us run this race to completion. We do pray, Lord, finally as we close, that you would return soon. We long for your return. We know that, that would, uh, that's going to be an experience that everything else will pale to. And so we long for your return so we can be in your presence, in the presence of the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and sing the praises around your throne with the myriad that have gone before us, Lord. But while we're here, Lord, may we work and be diligent diligently serving and seeking the one who's loved us so much. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.